You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 35. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, now we pray that you would, just as Cornelius in his household and even Peter, by your spirit, had your word and your global plan of redemption made clear to them in this day in Acts 10. We pray now that you would illumine the scriptures for us as well that we might see, that we might uh, see the risen Christ, trust him all the more, and believe him in his word and its implications for our lives. So God, we pray now that you would do this by your spirit 
for your people, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all here. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. Um, and we're just thinking about history, even as Clint was praying. And history is full of significant days. There are many significant days in American and world history. Just think about the Ides of March or the 4th of July, September 11th, December 7th. If you live in England, you'll remember, remember the 5th of November. Shoot, now maybe even January 6th might always be a significant day in American history. Some of those days are not only days to remember, but they were also pivotal days in which there was life before that day and life after that day. There was life before 9-11 and then American life after 9-11. And there are days like this in the biblical story as well. Uh, Obviously, the first day of creation, Genesis 1-1, in which God speaks light. The night of Passover, in which Pharaoh finally relented and released Israel from slavery. The day that Solomon finished the temple and dedicated the temple. The day in which the Spirit of the Lord descended. And so many more days like that in the Old Testament story. Just even as we heard from our call to worship in Psalm 66 of Israel was to look back and to remember the day that God had brought them through the Red Sea or he had brought them across the Jordan River. But the most history-turning days in the, in the whole history of the world and of the cosmos came in the coming of Jesus Christ, the day of his birth, Christmas Day, the day of his crucifixion, Good Friday, the day of his resurrection, Easter Sunday, and then the day of his ascension. These were pivotal, life-turning days. But the story didn't stop there. We even had other pivotal days and events that we've seen in the book of Acts, starting, of course, with his ascension to heaven in chapter 1, or that then secured salvation for his people, or then a new Solomon's temple moment where now the Spirit of God descended not into a building, but into his people. And at the risk of watering down all of these pivotal events in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, if they are all so pivotal, can any of them really be pivotal? But yes, because in that span of about 40 years or so, in the life and ministry of Jesus, and then the events immediately following his ascension, these 40 years are the entire hinge of human history. The transition from Old Covenant to New, from from Israel unto the world. And Acts 10 is the final turn of the page that began on Christmas Day with the coming of Christ. There will still be ripple effects on the other side of that page turn, as people are still trying to figure out what in the world has just happened now that the hinge has come, the page has turned. What is life now meant to look like now on the other side? But Acts 10 is it. This is the big one. Last week, we saw breadcrumbs of where this thing was going. We saw a paralyzed man named Aeneas, a man named after the conquering founder of Rome. He is made to walk by the power of Jesus. And then resurrection life is trailing behind God's people wherever they go. And then we saw last week, the last verse of chapter nine, where Luke told us that Peter was staying at the house of Simon, a tanner, a tanner's house in the town of Joppa. This was a house where there's unclean, dead animal stuff all around. All around Peter. Um, Maybe another breadcrumb. And then, 
This house is in the town of Joppa, the same port town which Jonah was hanging out in, trying to decide whether or not he would uh, take the good news of God's promises onto Gentile Ninevites, or whether he would disobey God, whether he would get in a ship and move in the opposite direction. There are breadcrumbs all over the place here, and we're going to see then Acts 10 begin to put the loaf of bread together. We're going to see this play out in three acts, which Luke divides into three days. The entire chapter is divided into three days, so we'll divide our sermon in those days as well. The first day, verses one through eight, which we will title and understand as a vision sending. And then the second day, verses nine through 23, in a vision descending. And then the third day, the rest of the chapter, verses 24 through 48, now a people mending. You like the rhyme? That's just for you, Clint. A vision sending, a vision descending, and a people mending. All right. First of all, the first day, a vision sending. In the big Roman outpost city of northern Israel of Caesarea, we find a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a centurion, meaning he was a Roman soldier who was in charge of 100 other soldiers. He is a well-respected guy, both in the Roman army and, as we later find out, amongst all the people around him. Not only that, he was a centurion of what we find out, is of a group of soldiers known as the Italian cohort. These are Italian Romans, meaning the real thing, not like outsiders from Gaul or Mesopotamia or some, some other conquered people who then became Roman. He was fully-blooded Roman, and all of his men were as well. And yet, at some point in his time in Palestine, Cornelius had come to know and had come to admire Yahweh, the God of Israel. And not just admire, but we find out that he feared God. He had become a God-fearer. He had a right reverence, a right uh, understanding of who this creator God of the universe was. And he then even devoutly prayed to this God. But it appears that he hadn't become a proselyte, a word meaning he, he hadn't like converted to Judaism by entering the covenantal people of God through circumcision. We can assume this because of how later the apostles uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 11, and then moving forward from there, will be so astounded that God had in fact moved to an outsider, an outsider of the people of Israel. He had moved to the first Gentiles. So assumingly, the Ethiopian in chapter 8, the Samaritans in chapter 8, they were still circumcised. They had received the external marker of belonging to God. Cornelius, on the other hand, and his fully-blooded Italian Romans, they were, or at least Cornelius, it was almost like he was standing outside of the household of God, and he had, like, had, his, had his nose pressed against the window and his hands up, like trying to see inside the house, trying to see what it might look like to know and worship God, might, what it might be like to be inside the people of God and yet still being outside of the people of God. He is an outsider. Certainly he would have felt this if he had ever gone up the mountain, up to Jerusalem. He would feel and understand this of not being allowed into the inner temple courts. He was an outsider. And yet here, with this guy, Cornelius, God is going to move out of the house and then show Cornelius the way in. An angel, in these first few verses of 
chapter 10, in this first day, an angel comes to Cornelius. And in verse 4, in terror, at the sight of this angel, Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? And in this vision, just like in other visions we've seen in chapters 8 and 9, again, the angel doesn't explain the full gospel to Cornelius. He doesn't welcome him into the family of God. But he just tells Cornelius to send, to, or send for Peter, to find someone who can explain this gospel. And so, immediately after the vision, Cornelius sends two of his servants and a Roman soldier to go find Peter in the, in the town of Joppa. This first vision, Cornelius has got to be a little confused by what is going on. And yet, he is confronted with a vision to send someone out to go find Peter. So, scene cut. End of day one, a vision sending. Now, second day, the second vision, a vision descending. Next day, while Cornelius's men are approaching Joppa, Peter, he goes up to the flat rooftop of Cornelius's, or of Simon's house to pray. And Luke tells us that while he's up there, Peter's already hungry. Maybe he's like lacking calories at the moment, and he's already inclined to have kind of like a Templeton the Rat from Charlotte's Web, like smorgasbord, smorgasbord vision of food everywhere. But then Luke tells us that it's not just this daydream. He's not just lacking calories. It's something even more serious than that. He's not only dreaming about food, but he is having a vision of unthinkable kinds of food. Like we called it last week, a blanket full of bacon descends from the heavens, or as Clint rightly corrected uh, this week, it is a pigs in a blanket. But it's not just pigs. It is actually all kinds of animals. It is Noah's Ark descending from the heavens, including those kinds of animals that Jewish people were allowed by God to eat, animals like cows and sheep and chicken and quail and most fish, but then other kinds of animals as well that they were not allowed by God to eat. Places like in Leviticus 11, which would have clearly delineated and outlined and prohibited animals that they couldn't eat, animals like pigs or rabbits or predatory birds or shellfish like crab and shrimp. And this is exactly when, we, when you hear of a kosher diet, this is what a kosher diet is to this day. With some later addition, additions, it is the strict adherence to the Jewish food and dietary laws found in Leviticus 11. So what the heck? What the heck? I mean, like if you want to be really, really holy, you can't eat bacon or shrimp. Feels pretty arbitrary and weird. Well, we'll include a really good blog post in the weekly email this week that will further break down the meaning and purpose of those Levitical food laws. But these laws were essentially God's way to keep his people separate from the world. Before the coming of Christ, it was his way to preserve his people. A people would remain distinct, would remain alive and well. That he would have them pursue a distinct identity. He would make them strangely unique through the law, including what they ate, but he would make them distinct both in how they were to treat those outside and inside their community. They were to treat people inside and outside with mercy, with kindness, with measured justice, unlike the nations around them. 
but including how and what they were to eat. Peter Lightheart explains the different kinds of animals and foods in Leviticus 11 like this. Sacrificial animals, which ascend to the altar to be turned to smoke, animals that Israel was to sacrifice, like cows, sheep, they serve a priestly role in Israel's worship, mediating between worshipers and Yahweh. They represent Israel, the priestly people, and especially the priests who also mediate between Israel and the Lord. So these clean, sacrificial animals were symbolic of Israel itself. Clean, but non-sacrificial animals, maybe animals like chickens or fish, would symbolically represent Gentiles who worship Yahweh. Gentiles like Melchizedek, or perhaps Moses' father-in-law like Jethro, or even a man like Cornelius here in Acts 10. Unclean animals, animals like pigs or shellfish, these symbolize idolaters and enemies of Israel. So eating isn't just for the ancient Israelites, isn't just about consuming calories, but is about becoming like the thing that you eat, becoming one with the substance. You are what you eat in these days. And one implication of these food laws is that if I am a Jewish person in the days of David or of Isaiah or Joshua, and my Gentile neighbor invites me over to his house for dinner, I ought to actually turn down that invitation. Why? Because of the kind of food that will be served, because of the kind of mixing and mingling of identities, both in food and in social life, perhaps even in worship. As God's people, I have a separate identity set completely apart for God's use in the world. So Peter sees this sheet descending, this heavenly ark opening, and perhaps right across his vision, a, a pig waddles by, and he hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And maybe, maybe initially, we don't know, maybe Peter thinks this is a test, so he responds, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Perhaps he is meaning, uh, I understand and take seriously the law that you have given to us, and I will always obey you, Lord. So by no means, Lord, I will not do this thing. Perhaps, though, maybe more like we've seen Peter respond over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, though he, he thinks he understands the world and he thinks he understands reality more clearly than the God who is speaking to him. So despite a heavenly voice clearly telling him that he is now freed, at least in this moment, from the dietary food laws of the Old Testament, Peter says, nope, that ain't right, voice from heaven. That ain't, that ain't it. I will not do that by no means, Lord. I will not eat what is unclean. So the voice, verse 15, comes to him a second time to reiterate and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call outside of the usage of God. It is for your usage and for his. And then verse 16, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I imagine some like heavenly shop vac or something. Like just immediately this thing like from four corners just gets sucked up and everything in it, and then it's gone. If Peter was confused by the command to kill and eat, now there's actually nothing for him to kill and eat. Was it a test? Did I just fail it? Perhaps he's thinking, am I really just low on blood sugar? 
And this is some kind of hallucination. Should I now actually just go down to the beach and find some food truck and get a shrimp po'boy or something? I don't know. What in the world just happened? He is confused, and we know he is confused because verse 17 says that Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. He has no clue how to interpret what is going on. But then right at that moment, two Roman guys are at Simon's gate, pushing on the ring button, like getting close to the camera, saying, hello, hello, is there anyone, is, is, is Peter here? And perhaps those inside, perhaps even Peter himself, sees them outside, and he's like, oh great, what do these, want? What do these guys want? These, these Roman occupiers, the stormtroopers are here. I don't know how long the Star, the Star Wars thing is going to keep going, but I'm going to keep it going. It's seriously like Luke is like at o, Aunt, uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru's house, and the stormtroopers are like knocking on the door, ringing the doorbell, asking if Luke is home. They just want to chat. He doesn't know what to think. But at that moment, we hear, or we read in verses 19 and 20, as they are ringing the doorbell, as they're knocking on the door, Peter directly hears from the Spirit, and he hears, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And like Abraham by faith, who welcomed his three strange visitors with heavenly intent, with warm hospitality in Genesis 18, just before another story about the nations, Peter does the same. He welcomes in these three visitors. And since they have walked the 38 miles or so to Joppa, and so that they all perhaps might get a good night's sleep and then head back up the coast to Caesarea tomorrow, he welcomes them inside. But so far, even though they have explained a bit about what's going on, why they're there. Nothing is quite clear. We've seen two visions in two days, a sending vision to Cornelius the Gentile and a descending vision to Peter, the Jewish apostle of Jesus, and yet they are both equally confused. Both Cornelius and Peter. The sun sets, the second day ends, and the tension is building, moving toward an explanation, moving toward a resolution on the third day. So the third day, third, now a people mending. In verse 23, the next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Peter walks in and finds a very strange audience. He's in a Roman guy's house full of non-Jewish Gentiles who have gathered to hear about Jesus. What in the world? Jesus is supposed to be Israel's king. He is the son of David. He sits on David's throne. What in the world would any of these Gentiles want to hear about, and why would they want to hear about this king? But I think this is when Peter perhaps is beginning to have an experience like Paul had with Ananias. The scales are beginning to fall from his eyes. This is a bit like an apocalyptic moment, not like a, an end of the world 
apocalypse moment, like there's zombies or like people are starting to hoard water or something, but like in the true sense of the word apocalypse. An apocalypse means an unveiling, a revealing, like the curtains being drawn back so that people might be able to see behind the curtain what is actually there in reality a revelation of reality. Revelation itself, the last book of the Bible, is apocalyptic. It is the big reveal where God shows that despite a world of increasing opposition, Jesus is king of heaven and earth. And this is perhaps a similar moment for Peter. He walks into the auditorium, the stage lights come on, and the curtain begins to draw, and on the stage is a stage full of Gentiles a bunch of Romans, perhaps their servants from all over the world. And in this moment, Peter begins to understand. Yesterday afternoon, when he was on the rooftop, he was inwardly perplexed. He did not understand at all what was happening with a bunch of pigs in a blanket. But now he begins to get it, that all of those animals on a sheet were actually symbolic of humanity for understanding a pivot in salvation history, that something new seems to be happening. Because when he walks in, in verse 28, he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Is that what he saw? He saw a blanket full of bacon. He saw a bunch of animals. And yet now he is making the transition, the, the move to now understand that this is actually about humans. So in verse 29, he says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then, why you sent for me? Essentially, how in the world could you have known that I was in Joppa? And what is it that you want from me now? Why have you sent for me? So then Cornelius tells Peter about the vision that he had had two days ago to send for Peter. And so then he explains in verse 33, so I sent for you at once. And you, Peter, have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. If there was perhaps any other scales just barely hanging on, blurring blurring Peter's vision, if there was any doubt at what the vision of the animals still meant, now Peter fully understands. God was behind all of this. He was certainly behind his own vision on the rooftop, but he was behind Cornelius' vision as well, that God seemed to be moving in a new way toward humanity, extending the walls of the household of God beyond just the people of Israel. He is showing himself and appearing to Romans. And so Peter opens his mouth and starts preaching, leading right off the bat with this, the end of verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Beginning with Abraham, on through Moses, and up into this moment, if you wanted to live in right relationship with God, you had to live in right relationship with his ethnic people, Israel. To be counted amongst the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So males would enter into the covenant family of God through ritualistic cutting away of their natural life by by faith, committing themselves and their future generations unto the Lord. To be counted among the household of God was to obey the law that God had given to his separated people. To know and to love God 
before this moment was to become Jewish, was to convert to Judaism, was to become Jewish both physically, socially, and culturally, certainly religiously. And what Peter now had just watched crumble before his very eyes was what Paul would later call in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility. Clint's already read a little bit from uh, him giving us assurance of our pardon in Christ from Ephesians 2, but I think it would be really good for us to just quote at length from Paul in Ephesians 2. I guarantee what Paul has to say is much better than anything that I could say. Maybe you've read Ephesians 2 a thousand times, but you've never read it with Cornelius in this moment in mind. Flip over if you've got a Bible with you. Keep your finger here in Acts 10 and flip a little bit over to your right. The book of Ephesians, right after the book of Galatians and before Philippians. Listen to this afresh. Listen to this maybe imagining yourself in Peter's shoes, a first-person camera shot as Peter is scanning back and forth around a room packed full of Gentiles who have come to hear about Israel's king. Paul says this in Ephesians 2:11. He says, "Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is astounding. What Paul is writing there in Ephesians 2, I think he has absolutely this kind of moment in mind. This Acts 10 Cornelius moment in mind. Cornelius and everyone here, his family, his servants, maybe several other soldiers under his command are here with their noses smashed against the glass, their hands up trying to see inside the window. And then the window and the wall itself just disappears and they all tumble in. It is through the promises that were made to Abraham and David that non-Jews must place their faith, but now no differently than any Jew, himself or herself, must believe and hear and respond to Jesus. Peter is realizing that this is a new movement of God. No longer 
sitting inside and inviting outsiders to come into the household of God to become Jewish, but that Christ has come to destroy the walls altogether surrounding the house, the walls that divide, now moving toward people of all nations, that all might be included. Not to become Jewish, but Jew and Gentile together to be united, to be mended into a new humanity altogether through Christ. A new people, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but a new humanity. Now, just briefly, does this mean that the law and circumcision, the food laws, the old temple, the Old Testament temple with its dividing walls, does this mean that all of these things were bad? Well, no. They served a very good purpose of preserving the people of God, about teaching them about God's holiness and his character. David is right to love the perfect law of God. But Paul will later call the law a good teacher or a guardian in Galatians 4. A teacher that grows up the young child into maturity, which then helps these people and helps us then understand the place of the law then and now. Uh, we spent 10 Sundays going through the Ten Commandments in like September and October of 2019, and we were going through the book of Exodus, and even a full Sunday thinking through chapters 20 through 23 of Exodus, the whole law, if you'd like to go back and listen to those sermons. So we won't spend much more time here. But to paraphrase one New Testament scholar, when a mother approaches a crosswalk and tells her child, holding the child's hand, uh, stop, do not move, don't walk. And then the light changes and she says, okay, let's walk. The mother hasn't contradicted herself. She hasn't even changed her mind. But it's all a matter of when. It is a matter of timing. The law of don't walk prepares the child for the freedom of, okay, now let's walk. The freedom that comes in knowing Christ and walking with God. So we'll have more opportunities to think through these things again a few more times throughout the book of Acts, certainly about the law and then what to do with the Old Testament law. But for now, something monumental has happened in the way that God interacts with his people. Peter boldly preaches Christ to these Gentile outsiders. He says in verse 36 that Jesus is Lord of all, not just Lord of Israel. And how is he Lord of all? Well, verse 38 and following, Peter will preach to them that Jesus was sent by God the Father. He was filled with power by God the Spirit. He was crucified, but brought with resurrection power back to life, and he appeared to many witnesses. And then God had sent out these witnesses now to proclaim that Christ has been appointed and affirmed as judge of both the living and the dead, which sounds terrifying. Peter's in this room full of Romans, and he's saying, this Jesus who was crucified by you and has now been raised back to life is the judge of both the living and the dead, and that is terrifying. And yet, it is not terrifying. It is actually good news. Why? Because verse 43. To him, the judge of the living and the dead, the resurrected Christ, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him 
receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If you would come to Israel's king, you might have your sins forgiven and no longer fear the judgment of the living and the dead. Now, why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? This is what Peter is preaching to these Romans, to the non-Jew. These eager and expectant Gentiles, they hear this proclamation. They hear this good news, and without hesitation, they respond in faith. While Peter is preaching, Luke tells us, while he is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on those who heard the word. Peter didn't even need to ask for a response. No altar call needed. He isn't even finished. And the Holy Spirit begins falling on those who are hearing the word and believing in Israel's king, who recognize their need for forgiveness, who recognize Christ Jesus as their substitute and as their king. And that's all that they needed to hear. They didn't need to be persuaded. They didn't need to be manipulated. They didn't need any other incentive other than Christ is my king. And then what happens, assumingly, there's another Acts 2 moment of Pentecost with maybe more wind and fire because the Jewish Christians who came along with Peter from Joppa are amazed at what they are seeing and hearing. It is a Gentile Pentecost because then they, these Gentiles, become or begin praising God in languages that they've never learned. Perhaps these Italian Romans begin speaking Aramaic. Maybe some of the locals who are in the house begin speaking Latin or some other language of others in the house that they've never learned. Who knows, but it's an Acts 2 redo of the undoing of Babel. Not a unified people that were then divided by language, the Tower of Babel, but a divided people who are now unified in language. God is reversing curse in the work of Christ. Now the Jew and the non-Jew are recreated into a new humanity. Those people of common ancestors of the first Adam now are reborn by a second birth under a second Adam. A new people altogether. Now while New Testament texts like Acts 10, like Ephesians 2, may be describing and understanding a specific time in salvation history, we are actually not prevented from making application to our own day. There's no doubt that while many Jews had a good desire for obedience to the law, for many, this good desire metastasized into a cynical, ethnic pride and an unwillingness to love those outside of their household. See the book of Jonah. While God's promises to Abraham were to the people of Israel, the people of Israel were to be the nozzle on the end of the garden hose through which God would water and bless the entire world. In singing the words of Psalm 67, Israel ought to have been singing and feeling in their hearts, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples of the earth praise you. And yet, many of them weren't. Perhaps most of them were not feeling and desiring this in their hearts. And just as easily, we, the new covenant people of God, 
outsiders who have been brought near can just as easily just assume that we are the insiders and there are many people on the outside. That God has brought us into the house and being in the house, now we're protected by new walls of separation from others for our own comfort rather than understanding that there are no more walls. We build new walls and look with suspicion or cynicism or even hatred against those of different ethnicity or skin color or language. While they're not like me, surely, if God really wants to love those kinds of people, then he'll just raise up people of those kinds who will love them better than I can. But that is not what Peter thought or said or did. We short-sightedly assume that different levels of education or income or even cultural or personal interests are actually really significant. Surely it would be better for us to just continue to kind of self-sort into our separate friend groups. Perhaps looking up the social ladder, we might think, that person has their life so much more put together than me, they don't need me. Or perhaps looking down on the so-called social ladder, thinking, I'm not sure what I'd talk about with that person. They're so different than I am. But not realizing that there was never any ladder to begin with, and that the ground is level at the foot of the the cross, and that humanity is always shoulder to shoulder and never head to foot. That truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And that if we, like Peter, begin to understand this, then we must grow in becoming like him. Like God in showing no partiality, no favoritism. No distinctions among ourselves. Those who have been brought together and been united together, recreated into a new humanity. Now, just a heads up, we have tentatively decided that we're going to take somewhere between a two to four week break from the book of Acts in April to preach through and think through ethnic division, racial strife, the reconciling power of the gospel, the response of the church, all of these things. Uh, We'll see if we come out alive (laughs) walking through those minefields. We'll even hopefully have times of question and answer for you to stick around with uh, and for after those times together as the church. But for now, Peter sees a household of people who were not like him. They were different in their languages, in their culture, in their customs. They were likely different in their political persuasions and aims. And yet he realized that through the unifying work of Christ, These people, these outsiders, became insiders. They became his household. They became the household. They were family, brother and sister, because they shared God as father. So he asks in verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This is bananas. A household of Romans swearing allegiance to little old Israel's king. A household of Romans coming under the fulfillment of little old Israel's temple system, the substitutionary Passover lamb. A household of Romans wanting to identify their lives 
with a disgraceful crucifixion, a humiliating public execution, wanting to identify with that death in baptism. And the rest of the apostles, as we'll begin to see next week, don't really believe that that actually happened. They're so astounded that God seems to be pouring out the Spirit on the Gentiles. They either don't believe that it happened, or if it did, they don't understand what God is doing. Can God do that? Can God save Gentiles? Can he pour his Spirit out on Gentiles? I don't know. What do we make of all this? And in fact, later in Galatians 2, Paul will write about how he had to later confront Peter, this guy, who's preaching to Cornelius and seeing the Spirit descend on all of these Gentiles. Paul would later have to confront that guy, Peter, for going back to the old ways. Peter would later rebuild walls of division, the old ways of the built-in prejudice, the built-in disdain of division had come back the walls that Christ had obliterated. Peter would forget the gospel that saved him, that it is by grace through faith, not by works. It is a gift of God so that no person and no people, no group of people might boast. It is only grace that God saves. And yet in the same way we forget, thinking that somehow, some way, I know, I know it's God's grace, but I think I probably made myself a little bit more savable than others. Through my effort or obedience or my culture or my education, God had a little bit more to work with when he got going with me. And then I might look at others in their lack of effort, their disregard for obedience, their cultural differences than mine, and I think even subconsciously to myself, can you believe them? And it becomes a religion of works all over again. And so to you and to myself, I'll repeat something that Martin Luther is said to have once said that he's perhaps apocryphally, maybe he didn't actually say it, but he supposedly said, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. We must remind ourselves to look back and remember important days, to remember a day like this in Acts 10. Like Israel, remember being brought through the Red Sea or the Jordan River, not by our own power, but by the power of God. We must remember who we are, as a wise old lion said. Remember who you are. So let's press hard in that this week to remember, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection by being a remembering and a unified people of Christ. Let's pray for his help. Our Lord Jesus, we confess that we elevate ourselves, that we tend toward disbelief, and because of our unbelief in the power of your salvation, the leveling nature of the cross, that we attempt even though we know it to be pointless and useless, we attempt to earn our way into your favor. And so we confess, God, that we trust in the work of Jesus. All our trust, Jesus, is in your blood. Help us remember this. Help us to 
remind ourselves and to remember that we are, out, we are former outsiders, and yet you have, by your grace, by your welcoming kindness, by your initiative, have brought us near, and you have made us, your church, both Jew and Gentile, into a unified new humanity. Unify us, O God, by your Spirit. Help us to love one another more uh, intimately and sacrificially. Help us to love the world around us, that they too might be called a son or daughter of God, our brother and sister. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.